Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Have you ever heard of the real world? Big Brother, Biggest Loser, or American Gladiator? Well, our next guest is the greatest packaging agent of all time and the architect of television as we know it today. Some call it reality, some call it nonfiction, and some call it unscripted. Whatever you want to call it, Our next guest is responsible for it. And the most respected agent in the business post-retirement, even today, Mark is a true visionary who never takes no for an answer. If he believes, he believes. He doesn't care if it takes years to sell an idea. When he believes, he's always right. How is he still making headlines? Because he doesn't stop. He's doing what he does best, packaging, creating, and selling. His newest show, College Bowl, is a huge hit and has been picked up for its second season. Mark is my forever mentor, one of my dearest friends, and a true, genuine genius. Welcome, Mark. I'm going to let J.D. take it from there. Susie, that was... (laughs) Thank you, Susie. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Susie. That was very, very kind. It's all true. Well, Mark, that was quite an intro. Yeah, it was. It blew me away. Thank you, Susie. True. <laughs> just wanted to get, just wanted to give you a second to take all that goodness in. Thank so, you. welcome to the show. And I've heard so many things about you. I feel like I know you, but one of the things I heard through the grapevine is that you have, and I quote, literally changed the way we know TV today. Unquote. What do you have to say about that? Well. Let's put it this way. I wasn't the first person to package and sell non-scripted television. You know, for years in that category of non-scripted includes game mm-hmm. shows and talk shows and sports and things of that sort. And that existed since the beginning of television and it kind of goes through cycles. So there in the 60s, there were a lot of game shows, both in daytime and in primetime. <clears throat> so you had the primetime version of Let's Make a Deal or the dating game or the Newlywood game and things like that. And then you had, in the 70s, you had real people. And then you had, in the 80s, America's Funny, some videos. So it's always been out there. I think what I, what the difference that I made was initially is that I made it my sole focus initially, and nobody had ever really done that before And because I loved it. And nobody else really thought it was very cool or sexy. And it was only until the late 90s when the scripted network business started to, they were eating themselves, basically. There was nothing new and fresh that people were looking for other kinds of programming when the network primetime non-scripted business exploded, but it wouldn't have exploded had there not been a real world on MTV in the early 90s. Yeah, that makes sense. Mark, you said that you made it your sole focus. That's insight. How did you know to make it your sole focus? 
I don't want to take away from having like some great vision or anything, but I just loved daytime TV and syndicated TV, things that were a little bit off the, off the radar screen of prime time. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody watched prime time and everybody knew everything about prime time, including yeah. me, but I kind of the, the, the unsung heroes and that in those days were making really big money for the networks were, was daytime game shows, yeah. soap operas, talk shows, what have you. And it was just something that interested me probably because my parent, my mom, my grand grandma, people that watched it mm-hmm. when I was either home from school or sick or during vacations, I just, I had said sort of an affinity towards it. And so when I went into the agency business, I thought, well, there's nobody else that focuses on this. I could really build a great business yeah. this way. And the daytime business kind of morphed into the syndication business and the syndication business morphed into the network primetime business. See, that's really interesting. I think it's important for people to know when you have something that's hitting you that hard, there's something to it. So that's why I wanted to clarify. God, Suze, you wanted to ask something. I was just yeah. going to clarify, sorry, JD, but that when Mark mentions the real world, Mark was the one who had the vision to introduce Mary Alice Bunham, had been a, who had been a soap opera writer, to John Murray, who had been a news pro- writer, producer. And it was Mark's vision to put the two of them together, which is where real world came from. Yeah. Yeah. So you not only had the fire as far as the idea, but you also had the wherewithal to connect people. So that's an important piece as well. Well, yeah, that the job of a packaging agent is really, you know, it's like a producer of a movie, the same thing is connecting people, okay. ideas and people. And I had a, a good friend in the syndication business, still is a good friend named Rich Colbert, who was a syndicator. And he knew John Murray, who was in New York, working for a station rep firm, and John Murray was kind of tired of doing what he was doing. And he wanted to, he had ideas for television shows, but he had no credibility in the producing right. business. So Rich says, well, can I have him call you? And he called me and he came out to LA, slept on my couch. And, and I first introduced him to somebody that, her name was Jackie Smith. She ran ABC Daytime. She'd be retiring. Mm-hmm. She wanted to she had, she's the one responsible for really making General Hospital and oh, all yeah. those shows okay. really famous. And she decided this guy's got a lot of good ideas, but I'm not, I don't think I really wanted my own company. And then I had this other good friend who was working at New World who had produced a lot of successful soap operas, Mary Ellis Bunham. And I thought, well, she could possibly take some of these ideas. And I introduced them and they formed a company and and uh, the rest is history. So how did you yeah. go from, you, uh, I'm sorry, UC Berkeley law to the mailroom? How'd that, how'd that happen? I felt that if I was going to be a lawyer, I had to be an entertainment lawyer. That's what I was interested in. And I was really, I ran the radio station at UCLA. And I was very much into music and television. But so I thought, you know, it'd be kind of cool to be a music mm-hmm. lawyer and I did. I became a music lawyer, but it wasn't very cool. It wasn't very much fun. And after about a year and a half, and I was at a really good firm and we had great clients, but it just, when you don't feel it in your heart and the passion wasn't there. And so I, I quit and, and I spent really 
10 months trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I mean, I got offered law jobs, but I just thought, oh, I'd probably do the same thing again. And I had a, a, a very good friend who was kind of like a rabbi to me, who once said to me, I think you'd make a really, and I'd never really thought about being an agent before. And he says, well, you know, if you're interested, I'll set you up with some exploratory meetings with some of my friends in the business. And he did, he set me up for uh, a meeting at the William Morris agency. And it sounded interesting. And it'd be, I thought, well, you know, it's like going back to grad school, making a little bit of money, but being at an agency is a good place because you can learn all different areas. And so that's what I did. And I went to William Morris in the mailroom. Yeah. Right. Put it this way. If you want to be an agent, I could have possibly gone into business affairs, which is, you know, doing the legal work, but I didn't want to do that. So my only other option was to go into the mailroom for $225 a week and start and, and do like many, many, many other people had done. And, and I decided that was the route I wanted to take. And it was the right decision because in six weeks, I was already out of the mailroom and I was working as an assistant to an agent, not much more than 225 a week, but, but it was a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so now I want to go back because I want to figure out what did your family say when you said, yeah, so, you know, I'm not going to do law. Yeah, what did that, that, look like? that was a, quite a zinger because there's another part to that story. I really wanted to like cleanse my experience and start new. So I did tell my parents I wanted to, I wanted to quit the practice of law after they had sent me to through law school and I, you know, passing the bar and everything, but I also wanted money so I can go out and buy a sports car. <laughs> and I did. My dad lent me $6,000 to buy a brand new Triumph Spitfire because I said, I just want some freedom here. And in my mind, that would have, that contributed to my freedom to put the top down on my little sports car and figure out what I want to do next. I know it may sound crazy, but that's how I felt. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's yeah, that age. It wasn't right? I wasn't pragmatic uh, in some areas, you know. But I did follow my heart. And it, I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And I remember I was at the law firm on a Sunday doing legal work and it was beautiful outside and there was an art show in Beverly Hills and I thought, "Oh, this is just just isn't right." So that's why I and I, and I think a lot of, not only my family, but a lot of the people I'd go to law school with, my friends thought, are you sure you're doing the right thing here after all of that? That's what I was going to, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering if in school you had any inclination, because that's a long way to go before deciding that, you know, not for me. So did you have any reflection in school, but you just didn't listen to I it? I had a lot of reflection in school, but you have to consider the time when this was happening, which was when I was at UCLA. I really wanted to go into radio. And as I ran the radio station and I really loved music, but my parents being good Jewish parents didn't want me to be in the entertainment business. And so oh, I, okay. and you know, I, I was a good kid. I wasn't a, a rebel. So I thought, well, you know what? I, I can't, I got to take a chance here. I had good grades. I, I told my parents, I'll apply to three law schools. 
if I get into any of them, I'll go. If I don't, then I'm going to go on and do radio. And that's, I, I applied to Harvard. I didn't get in. I applied to Georgetown. I didn't get in. I applied to Bolt, Berkeley. I got in. So I went to law school. Okay. All right. Thanks for going back. But while I was there, it was a great experience. But I knew that okay. somehow the entertainment create creativity had to be a part of what I did. And I think that was the real thing when I was at the law firm was that there was just no creativity. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. sense. And so Susie says that you had an eye for seeing what was not on television and bringing it to TV. Describe what that, what that looked like in your head. I always figured that, that if I, it was probably better to zig when, when they zag because every time there's too much of one thing, mm -hmm. it means it's kind of time to do something new and fresh, but it's also almost impossible to sell things like that because people want to go the safe route. They want to go things that they don't want to lose their job. They want to be accessible, things that are accessible. Mm -hmm. So you have to design things so that there's like a comfort or a, a, like a, a security blanket in the idea, even if the idea is, is new and different. It doesn't have to be radical, just new and fresh and different. Right. It took me almost seven years to sell American Gladiators. Now, well, there had been nothing like that before, but sports competitions had existed. <laughs> there just was something about that idea to me that just... I said, this is a, first of all, the title was incredible. And then when the show got developed, it was even more incredible, but I couldn't get anybody interested in it for really to get it on the air for almost seven years. Something you said that's just so profound and resonating with me is that it can't be too different so that it scares people, but it needs to be a new idea that can be innovative, but it can't feel too innovative. Is that, is that right? Yes. And if you think about the biggest success, well, it could be the biggest successes in any business, but say the television business, anything that's, that feels that's differently dressed, but has some kind of pull yeah. to the, to, to history, like American Idol, you know, we, there had been the amateur hour, mm -hmm. there had been star search, there'd been lots of things like that, but American Idol put it on steroids and made a talent competition new and fresh and exciting. And I wasn't responsible for that, but that show was pitched all over the place in the States numerous times. And it wasn't until it went on the air in the, in the UK that it became acceptable here okay. to buy. Okay. You know, um, you know, I'm thinking of the Desperate Housewives shows. I mean, like, how many more can there be before there's enough, Mark? How, how, many, how many more? When we had the first one, it was kind of shocking and fun. Then. You no. Know? And once, the, once the, the, the formula was so successful, then came all the copycats. Even Lost. You know, the year that, the, that ABC put Desperate Housewives on, they put Lost. And Lost was really different and special. And then there were so many ripoffs of loss. There yeah. still are ripoffs of loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, so as a packaging agent, what was your greatest success to date? I know it's a big question. 
Do you mean, when you say success, do you mean the financial success or uh, your critical success, success, your success, my success? What you define as being your most success, because I, I can't tell you what your success is. I wouldn't say financial, but what do you think was the most? I, I think that, I think there's a few. I mean, I, I don't think I can single out one. I think obviously Gladiators, because that was the, my first really, really big success. Then I had a credibility to sell other things. Mm-hmm. And I would say probably Real World, Ricky Lake, Big Brother, mm-hmm. Deal or No Deal. Those were all kind of revolutionary in their own way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Look, Real World, that was it for me. That's when I bought the reality bug. That was the best back in the day. And so I get how that went, you know, as big as it did. It was just so creative and people seemed really real. You know, back then it was. It like, was back then, you know. Yeah, I, mean, I know. It was so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you really felt like you were sitting in somebody's house then. It didn't feel so, you know, fake. Scripted. Yeah, yeah. scripted. Yeah. So that's really yeah. cool. It's good to hear you say that it was really real because I heard it was. Um, Very real. Okay. Okay. That's cool. From the story Susie tells us, there's instances where you used your privilege to move some things forward, you know, to get some things on the air that maybe white America or the white system would not have naturally been drawn towards. How did you do that? And what's your advice to others who desire to do the same? Susie, are you referring to Tyler Perry or? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I wasn't going to name drop. I was going to let y'all do it. Okay. 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 I, I guess I should set it up. I mean, you have to have something, you have to have something tangible and credible and have someone who's passionate about it and be passionate about it yourself. So one day my colleague, Charles King sent Tyler Perry to meet with me and Tyler Perry had said, you know, by that time Tyler had been doing Medea, but he yeah. hadn't been doing really television yet. You know, he'd done the plays, he'd done the movies, he hadn't done television yet. And CBS had given him a deal to write a sitcom for them. And when he got the notes back, he said he didn't want to do it anymore because it wasn't his voice. They were trying to change the authenticity of what he wanted to write about. You know, I mean, obviously Tyler Perry writes pretty authentic material. And so He came to me and he said, is there any way I can get around these people trying to change it? I said, well, I don't think you're going to be able to do that at a broadcast network. But now this particular, this was in the early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. I said, 20 years ago in the syndication business, there were actually, actually going back into the 50s, but but most recently, there had been sitcoms, weekly syndication sitcoms, like Small Wonder or okay. Charles in Charge. They played on a Saturday or Sunday. They tended to be more for a younger audience. But there was a business and a quite a good business. But it, it died out and there hadn't been anything for probably 10 or 15 years. I said, those shows are not, because they're syndicated, they're not influenced by networks giving you notes. A syndicator takes a sell in a lot of different stations all over the country. And if you want to help fund it, 
then less people are going to be trying to interfere that they won't be able to try to take control. And so he said, well, let's go for it. And I called a syndicator that I respected a lot, a company called Debmar Mercury. And um, they didn't have a lot of familiarity with Tyler yet, but we all got in a room and Tyler basically said what he wanted to do. And so all of us together created a plan to get what became House of Pain, Mm-hmm. which was also the show that he was writing for CBS out into the syndication world. And we created what was called a 1090 model, which was this, that we would, we would fund 10 episodes and we would put those on the best stations to reach the right demographics. And TBS was the station in Atlanta, believe it or not, Atlanta with very, very little African-American programming. Atlanta back then in the early yeah. 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so an underserviced demographic put it on and it went through the roof. Because no one was serving. It's like when Arsenio came out in, in the 90s and against a, a white ma- late night marketplace was something new and different, but also very good. Right. And so that's what happened. You know, we had... Tyler Perry, an important brand, a great product, smart people figuring out how to get it on the air, and a lot of passion. Mm. And then we followed that with Meet the Browns, which was the companion show. And today, I think the Latino community is incredibly underserviced, incredibly underserviced. And so in mainstream television, if, if you are bilingual or, or you're yeah. Spanish speaking, obviously well, there are- a long way. Yeah, the, yeah, but in the more Anglo world, mm-hmm. it's an underserviced demographic. Also, I think there's just so much opportunity that isn't being taken advantage of. Yeah, but it sounds like the key component, and then Susie, I'm gonna let you get in here. But it sounds like the key component is that collaboration. You know, that collaboration yes. is key, and that's that's yes. that's not easy to come by. So you know, good on all three of you for making it happen. You need somebody with credibility to break through the the barriers if you have something really good right it's a shame that it has to be in the 21st century like this i mean that even it's it's ridiculous but it is i appreciate you saying that acknowledging that go ahead suze get on with your okay these are probably very easy jd and i went through them together but of course i lost one of them that we found so first question for someone that loves and knows every episode of i love lucy we're gonna play a little game (laughs) Okay, so first of all, true or false, Lucy was married to her real life husband. Yes. Yes, that's the easy one. Okay. (laughs) After moving to the country, what did Ethel and Ricky bet Lucy? A, she couldn't make four laps in a pool. B, she couldn't hold her breath for two minutes. C, she couldn't win at ice cube throwing or four, she couldn't go a day without lying. Well, the lying episode, it wasn't in the country. The lying episode is when they still lived in the oh, city. Oh, well, then the Look trivia is wrong. Because it said <laughs> after moving to the country. And the answer was lying. Not true. <laughs> I love it. It's in the first or second season. It's really one of the great episodes. Yeah. Really, Lucy, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great one. <laughs> okay. I, I love Lucy okay. too. Um, who makes a cameo in part two? 
Kirk Douglas, John Wayne, Wright King, or Liza Minnelli? John Wayne. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. You didn't even have to um, JD wanted me to. Can I yes. tell you a story? Can I tell you a story? Mm -hmm. a, a, an Isle of Lucy, a great Isle of Lucy story. Go for it. There used to be a tour in Hollywood called the Graveline Tour that they would take you by places where people had committed suicide, drug overdoses, where tragedies in Hollywood had happened. Mm -hmm. and, and you picked it up in front of the Grommets Chinese Theater in a hearse. And you get in the hearse and you're taking off and the guy, a guy, the driver, guide, looks across to the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel and says, a very famous television personality lived in that hotel her entire career. Does anyone know who it is? And I said, yeah, it was Elizabeth Patterson who played Mrs. Trumbull on Isle of Lucy. The guy stops the car, turns <laughs> around and says, I've been driving this hearse for eight years and nobody has ever gotten that answer. That's great. Okay. <laughs> That's a great story. So what was your favorite Susie moment when we worked together? Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> Well, there, there are two really classic ones. <laughs> One was we had a colleague in New York and, and Susie was relatively new to the company. She'd never met the person before. And when you talk to the person on the phone, he was a little soft. I think the best way to describe it, he was a little bit soft, which doesn't mean anything but again back then in the 90s i mean it, it, we all took probably more license and you know made generalizations and so she started to get to know more and then one day she says he says he's coming out and susie who only it only comes from a great place says she says to him listen when you get here i got a great guy to introduce to you <laughs> and he says susie I'm not gay. Oh, oh it was at a time where Mark's right. It was like at a time. And I remember my assistant throwing off his headphone. <laughs> she, there wasn't one ounce oh, of malice or, or homophobic. There was nothing evil or anything in that. And she, I mean, if, listen, she grew up in uh, San Francisco on Polk Street, you know, I mean, which was the Castro of those days. So there's, I know her and her family. There wasn't an ounce of, of, of homophobia. You couldn't find it. It was funny. And the other one, the other one I'll just quickly is that we had a colleague in the office who nobody really liked very much. And he was kind of a jerk. And one day we were all on oh, the no. phone together <laughs> discussing some issue. And we finished the call and she says, oh, you know, he's just such a, I don't remember the word she used. And he says, Susie, I'm still on the line. Oh, oh my God. I actually thought you were going to tell the Bob Dole story. I had forgotten those two. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, I'm not over, I'm not over that That's one. That's a good one. Wait, I'm too. not over that one. There's so JD, there are so many. Oh my God. There are so many. When you gave Henry's expensive piece of I know that one. The oh. secret Santa at the Christmas party because she didn't know. <laughs> oh man, clearly, clearly we could go on and on and on.
on yeah, for hours. Look, yeah. Mark, it's such a pleasure to meet you. You're such a, a gentleman. And I really appreciate your sharing your insights. I think it's important for people to hear, particularly people who are interested in the industry and maybe doing what you've done so well. I was going to say what you're still doing, but you're, you're supposed to be retired, but not actually. So <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that so much. You sharing your secrets. That means a lot. Thank you guys. Thank you. All right. Yeah, see ya. Bye-bye. You. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.